0: Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our Insight Series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight Series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share.
1: Hello and welcome to the Halloween edition of our podcast series. Normally I'd introduce this by saying something about how we're putting a spotlight on topics that might be slightly under the radar because everyone on the planet is focused on the latest COVID developments. However, this isn't the case today for a couple of reasons. First, actually even more than COVID, this week it's the US election that is coming Tuesday uh, that is consuming most people's attention, obviously particularly so here in the US. Second, the narrative of our topic took a bit of a turn after we initially recorded the main section. Uh, thus, we offer our initial discussion around tensions between France and Turkey and the broader Muslim world, with an additional segment recorded the following day within hours of the attack in Nice. Uh, for this conversation, I'll be joined by Hedda Halverson, our Europe Analyst, and Phil Riding our Lead Analyst for the Middle East and Turkey, with follow-on commentary provided by Liana Centric, our Lead Analyst for Europe and Eurasia. Tensions between France and Turkey have surged in the wake of President Macron's forthright defense of freedom of expression and related crackdown on radical Islamists following the beheading of school teacher Samuel Paty in a Parisian suburb on 16th of October. Uh, Paty was targeted after having shown a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad in a class on freedom of speech. Macron's defense of the right to ridicule religious figures has already resulted in French products being removed from supermarket shelves in Kuwait and Qatar, whilst Turkish President Erdogan has encouraged a wider boycott of French products in the Muslim world. Anti-French protests have also been recorded in countries like Libya, Jordan, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. Paris has also recalled its ambassador to Ankara following a statement by Erdogan in which he said Macron needed mental health checks First question to you, Hada, this confrontation between France and Turkey is just the latest evolution in their uh, rather fraught relationship this year. What are some of the other key points of the tensions between them?
2: Yeah, as you say, tensions between the two have definitely been mounting over the past couple of months related to multiple different issues, uh, one of them being in the East Mediterranean with Turkey's explorations in waters that are well, especially off from the EU side, considered Greek and, and Cypriot waters, and on a continuous basis going uh, out with ships to to look in terms of uh, natural resources. This has definitely been a big element which has driven tensions between not just France and Turkey but also the EU and Turkey. France has been a very consistent ally of Greece and uh, Cyprus in these matters and sent for gaps to the Eastern Mediterranean, which is also of course then contributed to elevated tensions in the region. Outside of this, we also have now the issue around the conflict with Armenia and Azerbaijan, where France as well has been quite stark in its criticism of Turkey and their open support of Azerbaijan. Uh, There have also been quite a few accusations of foreign fighters being Basically, shipped by Turkey to to the region to to fight. Uh, so these have definitely been some uh, some difficult and contentious issues that have driven tensions between the two over the past couple of months and weeks.
3: Just to to pick up on that, I think probably the other major point of, of tension between France and Turkey would be. Uh, their backing of opposing sides in the uh, Libyan conflict over the last year. Uh, And this really, I guess, is a a continuation of um, a kind of common theme, which underlied the the, the two points that uh, Hedda made there in relation to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and um, the situation with Greece and uh, Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean, which is that under President Erdogan, Turkey is becoming an increasingly assertive regional actor. Um, and the Libyan theater has simply been one aspect through which it's, it's seeking to achieve a, a degree of, or through which President Erdogan, I should say, in a personal capacity is seeking to achieve a degree of discretion from um, you know, several domestic challenges, obviously COVID-19 uh, and his handling thereof being uh, the latest among those. But in the Libyan civil war, effectively, the Turks have backed the UN uh, supported government uh, in Tripoli, the Government of uh, National Accord, Whereas uh, the French have, albeit in a low-key capacity, um, supported General Haftar uh, and the uh, Libyan National Army, which is based in the east of the country. And over the last year, Turkey's relationship with the GNA has gone from uh, strength to strength. Notably, in relation to the eastern Mediterranean issue, Turkey and uh, the GNA signed a maritime agreement which effectively divided the eastern Mediterranean between them by drawing a maritime boundary down the middle of it. Late last year, which obviously, you know, caused tensions to rise with with Greece, Cyprus, and uh, their backers in in Paris. But then, more significantly, this year, Turkish support to the GNA was was fundamental in um, reversing a offensive on on Tripoli by uh, General Haftar and the Libyan National Army, who were backed by France and uh, a sort of variety of other regional players, which saw that that offensive collapse as a result of, of Turkish in, uh, involvement. Um, and so the GNA has now had its fortunes reversed, largely thanks to the Turks, uh, when it's left Haftar's backers, among them um, Egypt, uh, Russia, and uh, indeed France, looking at a situation where they seem to have backed the wrong horse. So while this, uh, this confrontation in Libya is quite a, a sort of sensitive issue for France, because it's clearly reticent to overtly support a, a sort of strongman, and, and rather than the uh, UN recognised government in uh, in Tripoli, it's exposed the um, the rift between Turkey, which is a you know a NATO ally at the end of the day, and friction between the the two also led to France withdrawing from a NATO uh, naval operation which is designed to enforce an arms embargo in, in Libya earlier in the summer. So there, there's been sort of several flashpoints in, in and around the eastern Mediterranean, which, uh, you know, arise from Turkish assertiveness and, and France's desire to, to contain that and, and limit the damage therefrom.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Phil. So given, you know, what seems to be some expanded multilateral context to the examination of, of Franco and Turkish tensions, what does this mean for the wider... Uh, European Union and Turkey relationship?
2: Well, yes, so this latest development definitely does not help the relationship between the EU and and Turkey. Um, It does kind of fall into this existing trend of an ever-widening divide between the two, um, which has been fueled by multiple um, multiple de- developments, as as we touched upon earlier, such as situation in, in the East Mediterranean, uh, with also other EU countries being quite at the forefront, criticizing Turkey, um, along with France. You know, as we especially seen uh, Cyprus and Greece being quite vocal in terms of the more formal relationship between the two. I mean, Turkey and EU. Um, have had membership talks Um, these have stalled and have been stalled for for years at this point Um, but should Turkey come out with more of an official boycott of French goods then the European Commission has warned that you know such an official boycott would mean that Turkey would be in breach of the terms of the current relationship that Turkey has with the bloc which foresees free trade of goods in a less official stance of this more kind of encouraging uh, boycott of French goods you know even that the European com- Commission has been quite clear that it definitely is viewed as as a further setback in in the stalled membership talks with with Turkey so it definitely fuels this uh, this trend of increasing divide and tensions between uh, between the bloc and Turkey uh, whether or not that will mount to you know, full-on sanctions um, is currently somewhat uncertain. Uh, France has indicated that they want some measures to be taken. However, the details of that those measures have not really been um, announced or clarified. Also, getting sanctions through the EU tend to be uh, a bit of a challenging affair. So it's not something that I would expect seeing in the next kind of weeks, Uh In that case but yes it's something to to definitely keep uh, keep an eye on especially when france kind of makes more of a claritive statement as to what measures they they kind of have in mind Uh, it could be something that definitely falls short of of full-on sanctions more widely as well i think around the the broader relationship with turkey and the eu and eu leaders you know with erdogan going out not just targeting macron but also other eu leaders and western leaders it definitely contributes to this divide multiple eu leaders have come out in support of macron in support of freedom of speech and supported the the fight against islamic extremism and with erdogan and his rhetoric kind of coming out comparing uh, western leaders to and in the current situation to you know the nazis and um calling them fascists it's uh it, definitely not exactly the recipe for for bettering the relationship between the two uh, sides, so to speak.
3: So just on, on that one, Hedda, I mean, clearly, obviously, France has been in, uh, along with uh, Greece and Cyprus, have, have been one of the key advocates of, of imposing some degree of formal sanctions on Turkey over its um, activities in the eastern Mediterranean. And, and obviously, the, the confrontation after the death of the Patti will only exacerbate that. But who were... Who are the kind of key obstacles to um, the imposition of EU sanctions by the bloc? Is I mean, I assume that Germany is is key amongst them.
2: Yeah, so I mean, Germany definitely faces a bit of a domestic issue when it comes to Turkey because of a big Turkish population. So that's definitely a key point for them. But I mean, we've also seen, for example, with with the sanction talks, uh, that Cyprus was also you know blocking Belarus sanctions because of the situation in the Mediterranean. So there's a lot of Various countries involved here that could, that could potentially uh, seek to push their own agenda uh, by blocking by blocking sanctions. But uh, I would definitely say yeah, Germany is 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 one to to watch for that. And Germany has been very clear, trying to calm the escalating t- tensions in the East Mediterranean, try to play a bit of. a peacemaker role, so, so to speak but at the same time we have seen now the foreign ministry go out and you know come out in defense of Merkel and, and it's the issue I think especially around freedom of speech and such it's uh, it's one that I think most European leaders will really stand behind and yeah and so in this case I think it, it might not amount to full-on sanctions due to a series of issues as said around for example domestic concerns that Germany has so, if the
1: response falls short of, of imposing formal sanctions, um, you know, then I suppose there's at least two clear scenarios in in terms of kind of the, the instrumental issue of of economics and trading relationship. You know, either you know there's some fury and bluster rhetorically, and you know, in in the longer term, minimal to no impact on on the broader trading relationship, or does, does this in fact become, you know, a, a big economic issue uh, with significant legs that, that really go well into 2021?
3: I guess this sort of brings us to the, the, the issue of like, what what is the extent of France and Turkey's trading relationship? And how can it be affected by these types of, of calls for for boycotts by, obviously by Erdogan in, in this instance, but, you know, they've been mirrored by other leaders in the region, but if we take just the, the bilateral relationship between Turkey and France, I mean, they're, they're, that that trade between the two is worth somewhere in the region of 14 to 15 um, billion US dollars per year, obviously not taking into account the, the situation as it's evolved over the course of, of the COVID pandemic, but if we look at figures from the last couple of years, it's been fairly steady at around 14, 14 and a half billion. But within that, you know, France sells Turkey. a lot of sophisticated equipment so looking at um, aerospace parts for example machinery automotive equipment and pharmaceuticals and these are things that are not readily abandoned when it comes to you know contracts and and purchasing arrangements and so on so while the 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 call for the boycott by uh, Erdogan certainly uh, attracts a substantial amount of attention and and might affect purchasing decisions at a low level you know for example amongst you know fast moving consumer consumer goods foods luxury brands that kind of thing um it's it's unlikely to see a short-term shift in purchasing patterns of of these kind of like you know big ticket trade items particularly things like uh, as i say like aerospace for example which is you know not the these are supply chains that are well established and and not easy to adapt on on the basis of you know short-term political developments. and looking in the other direction you know what does turkey sell france well that tends to consist largely of again, automotive parts and vehicles and agricultural produce. Um, and it'd be fair to say that, obviously, as a result of this fallout, but because of the relative sophistication of France's economy in relation to Turkey, that France may have a little bit more leeway to kind of change its purchasing patterns as a consequence of this fallout, particularly if it, if it continues to drag on or if it escalates in, in any way. Um, you know, France has quite strong trading relationships with other parts of the Middle East, for example, particularly North Africa, where French uh, automotive and the German automotive companies have, have established a reasonable presence in Algeria, for example. And obviously, um, agricultural produce, again, which has been purchased from Turkey, could well be bought from elsewhere if, if, if it came to it. So, France comes out of this situation in with regards to bilateral trade in a, a stronger position. But that's not uh, to sort of take away from the kind of the short term reputational impacts or or, or sort of eye-catching headlines that we might see over the course of the next week with you know well-known French cookery brands for example or or, um, food products or shampoos and and other kind of beauty um, products being removed from shelves across you know a range of Middle Eastern countries whether it be you know Egypt, Turkey, um, Kuwait and so on.
2: Yeah I second that I mean I kind of what you touched on, in Phil, I think if, you know, they wanted to really hit France where it hurt, um, it would be on imports and goods, so to speak, more closely related to industries such as defense. Obviously, that would, as you say, would be problematic on, on their part as well. But that's where um, that that's where it would really hurt in terms of the more goods along the lines of, you know, beauty, food, um, these kinds of, uh, of products. Uh, it's obviously not great for French businesses, but um, at the same time, I believe that Carrefour has said, you know, as of right now, at least they are not really feeling any impact of, of this call for, for boycotts. Um, and then also, there is the issue of especially foreign brands sometimes, you know, owning, uh, having the brand, but not necessarily doing the manufacturing and, and uh, the production in the country. So, in the end, it could also end up hurting employment in, for example, Turkey and uh, and other countries. Terrific, thank you both. You know, so then maybe turning away
1: from the kind of more purely government perspective and, and looking instead, you know, kind of out, out to the street, so to speak. You know, it, how genuine is the apparent anger in Turkey and the Muslim world beyond government rhetoric and perhaps media headlines? Um, you know uh, you know about this issue and Macron's recent comments on Islam I- is there something to this or is it more just kind of rhetorical exploitation by politicians like Erdogan or does it go deeper than that
3: I- I'd say it definitely goes deeper obviously you know that there are uh, there is a degree to which uh, you know Erdogan in particular and, and other governments in Pakistan and Bangladesh for example might be seeking um, to exploit this opportunity to Um, distract from their own uh, domestic problems and gen up a bit of uh, sort of popular anger at uh, you know a a sort of colonial bogeyman certainly in you know bits of uh, the Middle East that were once um, French territory whether it be in North Africa or the Levant but you know there there is a a real sort of groundswell of, of popular anger about this particular issue and sometimes I think it can be quite easily overlooked in the West because we don't have the same kind of sort of popular notion of something which is absolutely taboo which insulting the prophet and indeed you know depicting him particularly in an unflattering capacity is 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 a really sort of totemic issue for a lot of even relatively what we would think of as moderate muslims in parts of the middle east and, and the wider world so yeah this really is something which will take to the streets and and we've seen that already um with you know independent decisions by retailers in countries like Kuwait, which don't have a particularly antagonistic relationship with France, you know, removing products from shelves. Similarly, um, while, you know, the UAE and and Saudi Arabia have not called for boycotts on French goods, still many of their citizens have gone to social media and subscribed to campaigns about, you know, boycotting a range of French consumer goods and and other brands. So, yeah, there there really is a a degree of, of popular anger about it. And for all that in the West Uh, emmanuel macron's defense of french secularism makes a lot of sense trying to articulate that in a in a context where religion specifically and and sort of and religious figures obviously within the islamic world occupy a kind of unassailable place in the popular imagination it's really impossible to kind of make the two align so any attempt that macron makes to kind of double down on his you know repression of so-called political islam whilst at the same time opening his arms supposedly to France's Muslim community is, I'm afraid, going to to ring rather hollow to people in the streets of Dhaka in uh, Bangladesh or um, Islamabad in Pakistan and and other parts of the Muslim world where the the notion of victing the prophets for satirical purposes is sufficiently insightful as to to, to be tantamount to inciting violence, which obviously in the West is is clearly not the case. So yeah, this has the potential to kind of have quite a long tail um, for, again, at a low level, Purchasing decisions in, in various parts of, of the Middle East um, as a consequence of that kind of popular discontent uh, and perception of France and Macron specifically as being somehow is Islamophobic, even if the rhetoric of um, Erdogan and, and other sort of autocratic leaders moves on over the course of the next month to another kind of touchstone issue which serves their interests uh, to distract negative attention.
1: Thanks, Phil. And and Hedda, what you know, what about the immigrant and, and French Muslim population? Uh, are there similar sentiments and dynamics at play there as, as elsewhere in the Muslim world?
2: Well, I would say that especially looking at France, there has been a call from well, the, the immigrant population, ethnically Muslim population in, in, in France is definitely it's mainly moderate and they have called for, you know, um, for for people to calm down, so to speak, and you know, come out in France's defense uh, in some way, saying that you know, uh, France is not a place where Muslims are are persecuted. Um, so up until now, it had it has kind of remained relatively calm. Obviously, the this crackdown in the wake of the beheading of Patty has been. I think the problem here is that it has the, the potential to fuel this us versus them and alienate segments of society that already feel discriminated against. Uh, this is more likely to be a small part of society, um, but they are also the ones that might be more vulnerable to radicalization, especially in this kind of COVID environment. So so I would say the mainstream have seems to be taking steps to try to calm things down and yeah has definitely kind of come out in in defense so to speak of, of France but uh, there is potential here for for smaller segments of society to to let this uh, development impact them to the sense that it will they will feel even more alien alienated and then uh, of course the on the other side of the issue you also have right-wingers as well who could use uh, this this event related to in terms of the beheading to uh further their costs which will drive uh tensions further and kind of result in more of a downward spiral
1: well let me ask if if you can then expand on that a little bit so how how do these factors in the you know pockets of you know, vulnerable population for, you know, to to radicalization and, and possible retribution from both sides, including the French right wing. Uh, how does this affect the, the security situation domestically for France?
2: Yeah, so the threat of terrorism in France has been high and quite high for a while now. But obviously, the interior minister has now gone out again, stressing that uh, this threat is is very high. Uh, he also made a similar statement uh, not long ago, uh, just as the trials against 14 individuals who, who are accused of facilitating the attack on Charlie Hebdo in January 2015 started, uh, and they republished re, uh, republished this uh, controversial cartoon of, of the prophet. So, I mean, we'll say, though, that the threat environment or the security environment that there's been a substantial threat of terrorism for. Issues related to radicalization, for example, has been a concern in the midst of COVID with uh, a lot of other factors related to socioeconomic conditions, isolation and discrimination, which these types of conditions that have been exacerbated by by the pandemic and uh, also a lot of people spending time online potentially falling falling prey to, to radicalization. And this is obviously, obviously on both sides. I think also that in this kind of current environment with then increasing geopolitical tensions between France and, and the Muslim world, uh, that kind of then has the potential to feed more into this. The fact that French national police has gone out and said that they need to increase security around religious sites over the coming days in relation to All Saints uh, holiday, it indicates that we are kind of like potentially experiencing a bit of a flashpoint, not necessarily breaking with the overall trend of the security environment, but, but a potential flashpoint which elevates the risk of, of, of an attack potentially being carried out uh, over the coming, coming days, weeks, definitely short, medium term. In addition to, you know, churches, I think definitely educational institutions could be targeted, especially in relation to the last event or a terrorist incident. But of course, other symbols of the French state uh, are also likely. So I think, yeah, the, this kind of comes at a time when so many social tensions are already heightened. There were already significant concerns around radicalization and potential for uh, new flashpoints of terrorism, that this kind of feeds into that even more. This crackdown by the French authorities on what they perceive as radical Islam as well, uh, could potentially be a bit tied into the um, presidential election of 2022, with Macron wanting to kind of come off as, as a strong man um, and in that sense kind of rival Le Pen, who uh, some polls suggests is uh, kind of the number one for the French in terms of a strong a stance on terrorism. The French also they have they've had an issue with the fact that they don't really have an intelligence apparatus that is as well equipped to deal with domestic terrorism as some other countries and that has to do with their history. Uh, up until relatively recently, they didn't have that many problems with domestic terrorism, uh, versus countries such as the UK, who's had this issue for a long time. So yeah, this this crackdown as well feeds into again uh, rhetoric which can easily cause um, increasing us versus them and and trigger attacks uh, on both sides, really.
3: So yeah, just while we're on sort of hard security issues, I think just to uh, zoom out again back to the the wider Middle East. You know, French brands, uh, retailers will be conscious in the coming days of, of the prospect for um, the type of popular anger that we discussed a moment ago, which does have those kind of genuine, uh, emotive um, sort of grassroots that, you know, might manifest, particularly in the current environment, you know, with economic strain and, and social uh, anxiety over COVID-19 and, and various economic pressures that, you know, there's the, certainly the potential for isolated protests or, or vandalism directed at obviously French um whether it be offices businesses maybe perhaps protests outside embassies and so on so that'll be something that yeah french brands will be be quite conscious of in in the next week obviously if we're looking at particular uh, locations of, of heightened risk um obviously turkey which we've already discussed in, in some detail might be one but then also um former french colonies in and around the mediterranean lebanon where there's always a already a high degree of, of um social breakdown as a consequence of of local factors but could be exacerbated by this kind of, you know, popular core celeb uh, over, yeah, but you know, Macron's supposed uh, Islamophobia, but then, you know, other parts of North Africa, for example, like Algeria could, you know, the, these are areas where that kind of popular anger might manifest itself in, in isolated acts of, of violence.
1: Uh, thanks, and I guess a, a final question, maybe kind of summing up um, for you, Hedda, is it fair to say then that kind of at present, I, I think you may maybe even use the term kind of teetering, you know, as a description, you know, at present, does the situation affirm uh, existing uh, kind of risk assessments domestically for France, but that a, a subsequent uh, additional attack and possible right-wing retaliation you know, would then uh, comprise the a, 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 a type of a flashpoint that would then really kick off a, a truly heightened kind of next-level risk or threat assessment?
2: Yeah, I would definitely say that there is there is scope for it for for that if we do see you know um, an attack, whether that is from Islamic extremists or or retaliation on the on the far right side, then I do think we definitely need to uh, maybe up the, the the threat level for for France even further um, as this has the potential to spiral even more and kind of again going back into. This this issue with uh, obviously the uh, so many of the the attacks recorded of, over the last couple of years in France stemming from from lone wolves. Um, it's this focus then now on uh, radicalization and, um, and and institutions, organizations, mosques, etc., that are deemed to to potentially be. Um, be, be involved with uh, what, what the what the authorities deem to be uh, hate speech or radicalism uh, I think that yeah has the has the potential to, to push it a little bit further but on, on the flip side of that is that there is definitely an argument to be made for more um, focus on potentially links of, of that sort but it's maybe the way that one goes about it as at the moment it's a little bit like a bulldozer Coming in, and again, I think that goes a little bit back to the upcoming election and, what, and Macron potentially wanting to be viewed as, as a bit more of a stronger uh, leader when it comes to the issue of terrorism. But but yeah, in terms of the the overall security environment in France, as I said, it has been high. Uh, the threat level has has been high f- for a while now, but it did increase ever so kind of so slightly in. Uh, in September when when the trial with uh, Charlie Hebdo started up again. And obviously since then, we've now seen two t- t- attacks. They, Even though the, the beheading was, was a gruesome one, they uh, haven't been high in impact in the sense that there haven't been a lot of casualties. I think if we were to see more of a high casualty uh, attack, then we could uh, definitely evaluate uh, upping the, the threat level for France further.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, a fantastic conversation. Uh, I, I really appreciate kind of illumination of some of these complex issues uh, across both France and Turkey. Uh, a Phil, uh, thank you very much. A wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. And now, given that we've seen uh, some rather significant events uh, in France taking place following our initial conversation with Hedda and Phil, uh, I'm joined now by Liana Semchuk, our lead analyst for Europe and Eurasia. Uh, Liana, you know, obviously, some very significant developments, you know, to which you know we we are wanting to add some additional conversation here. So, for events over the past couple of days, uh, can you can you fill us in on some of the details on what has happened and how that affirms kind of our, our forecast and any, any updates to our assessment.
4: Indeed, thanks, Greg. Yeah, so the attack in Nice is the third deadly knife attack in the last three months that French authorities have attributed to terrorism. And this particular incident left three people dead and several injured um, and took place outside a Notre Dame Basilica. Um, as we reported this week, the risk of terrorism attacks in the coming days and particularly over the coming weekend will be heightened. Um, the attack also you know, comes just a day after the French National Police called for increased security, um, particularly around religious sites in the country. And I should also add that a few hours after the incident in Nice, a guard in the French consulate in Saudi Arabia was also stabbed. So this reflects that threat to French citizens, um, symbols of French state, and to perhaps a lesser extent, French businesses exist outside of France as well. You know, all of these attacks seem you know, they come against the, the backdrop of escalating tensions between France and the Muslim world, especially with Turkey. Um, the relationship between the two countries deteriorated fairly rapidly, especially following um, the killing of a history teacher on the 16th of October, after he showed a controversial cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad in his class on freedom of speech. So this uh, prompted the French authorities to essentially crack down on radical Islam in the country, which then uh, led to Turkish President Erdogan to call for a boycott of French goods Um, And this essentially drives risk of um, radical elements potentially being more inspired to carry out further attacks against French citizens um, and interests, not just in France, but also internationally, which has been reflected in the um, incident in Saudi Arabia outside of the French consulate. And so I guess in the days ahead, we expect that uh, places of worship will likely remain primary targets of such attacks. Uh, Embassies, consulates, and other French government buildings will also be at a heightened risk of targeting, particularly abroad, at the moment, we expect that popular French retail brands or businesses will potentially be at a slighter, slightly lesser risk of experiencing an attack or an increased hard security threat, largely due to more stringent lockdown uh, measures in France, which could see a decreased foot traffic and could therefore mitigate some of that risk. But uh, boycotts of French products um, are likely whilst tensions remain high. But you know, lastly, we should also just not rule out potential commercial commercial property damage should there be any sporadic protests which could lead to clashes between protesters or attract uh, far-right groups to these demonstrations.
1: Thank you, Liana. Uh, it's very helpful to have that additional commentary. I know that this re- reflects uh, very closely what Heda had indicated in her forecast uh, just the day uh, before the event in Nice took place. Uh, Now, I know that you and your team will be actively monitoring uh, issues and and indicators and we'll follow up with additional reporting for our clients uh, as warranted. Again, thank you so much. We wrap up now with a chat with Ed Johnson, manager of our analyst team in the UK to highlight various topics and issues of concern in the week or weeks ahead. Uh, Ed, uh, perhaps starting with the obvious, uh, the U.S. election.
0: Hi, Greg. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, obviously, the, the U.S. elections are sort of front and center of everything uh, in in the week ahead. Um, undoubtedly, one of the most divisive elections in, in in modern memory. Polls are showing that sort of hostility to the opposition party is now the the principal motivator of, of voters in, in in determining their vote. You know, I think there's, a, there's an anticipation of a lot of confusion around uh, election night, and, and it remains to be seen whether we will get a result on the night. Obviously, uh, both parties now engaging in state-level litigation over mail-in ballots um, and all, all those sorts of things. Um, and undoubtedly, in, in the context of uh, a recent Supreme Court appointment, uh, it promises to be quite a quite an interesting evening, and and possibly uh, weeks to come into into December.
1: Got it. Thank you, Ed. Uh, yes, like, like many others, I'll, I'll be looking forward to uh, to putting this in our in our rearview mirror. I hope.
3: Yeah, so, as I
1: said, let's let's change up then. And now, what else uh, is there in the rest of the world that you might be looking at in the week and weeks ahead?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, sticking with the election theme, we've got a couple of contentious elections uh, in in Georgia and Moldova on uh, the thirty first of October and the first of November, respectively. Um, as was touched on in in the podcast previously a couple of weeks ago. It's another test of Russia's enduring influence on its, on its borders. And you know, given the internal dynamics in those countries, uh, possible sources of unrest, although unlikely to be on, on the levels we've seen recently in, in Eurasia, uh, in either Belarus or, or Kazakhstan. Elsewhere, we've got Algerian voters heading to the polls on, on November 1st for a constitutional referendum. While there was a lot of violence in the country last year, uh, we are unlikely to see uh, much sort of contention around this uh, Referendum, given that it's largely a sort of an exercise in window dressing by the ruling elite and is, is sort of widely viewed uh, as such. Looking ahead to Europe on a sort of more you know, policy level, we've got a, a key vote, uh, a key week coming up ahead of uh, for the European Union um, over the uh, agreement on its rule of law mechanism, which is being resisted by Poland and Hungary. Um, so, possible sort of escalation of tensions there in, in those countries that are increasingly at odds with the EU's policy agenda.
1: Thank you, Ed. So, and is there any, any good news or, or positive indicators on, on the horizon? It,
0: it might, might be nice to look at the world that way for a change. Uh, indeed, uh, if, if only there was more of it. I would know one, sort of one positive is the, the sort of peaceful transition of power in Bolivia, which will culminate on, on November 8th after elections um, earlier in October, where Luis Arce is to be set to be sworn in after winning a landslide um, in the victory, in the, in the rerun of the annulled 2019 elections. So he's the leader of the same movement of the former president Evo Morales, uh, and you know we expect a sort of uh, morales light administration there. Um, which, some interesting policy choices coming up in the uh, in the in the months to come. Uh, morales is expected to attend that ceremony, um, returning from his exile in, in Argentina.
1: Well, and, and I guess the other thing to mention that might be uh, potentially uh, a week from now, uh, we can say hopefully the United States may uh, be in a position to follow the example of Bolivia uh, and and have a, a peaceful transition of power on the horizon as well. Although I, I think many will not be holding their breath for that, as we unfortunately may uh, may, may not have a decisive election result, uh, even in a week's time to discuss in the, in the next podcast. But with that, thank you, Ed. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. And repeating my thanks to Heda and Phil and Leanna for their insights as well. To our listeners, please reach out if you have any questions about these topics or any other issues on your mind, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.